going on our uh, third year in this pandemic. Um, many have noticed, including me, myself, <clears throat> that it has brought an increase uh, and a need to identify an underlying cause of our anxiety and our grief, our depression, everything about our mental health. I think one of the things about the pandemic is that it's kind of exposed that to us, uh, as, as well as the pandemic itself bringing, it its, bringing its own anxiety and its own grief and its own trauma you know, to us. And I think that uh, the way that it's shown in me, and I don't know if you can relate or not, is it has caused an, a huge decrease in mental and emotional bandwidth that I have. And what I mean is, there's so much more that I would like to care about to do, and I just don't have it. Anybody relate to that right now? Um, we're exhausted, we're tired. And I think that one of the most helpful things, if, if, if you'll allow just a little bit of bumper sticker therapy, is one thing, uh, do yourself a favor and look in the mirror and say to yourself, you know what, it's okay to be not okay. Um, when I think of the energy and everything that we had been putting up before all of this, pretending that everything is always okay, you know, that no matter what's happening, no matter what's going on in our lives, that on Sabbath morning we, you know, screw on our smiles and, and, and look at each other right in the eye and say, happy Sabbath, everything's great, even though we might be this close to falling apart. It's okay to be not okay. And so one of the things that I've, that has added to my anxiety and my grief is to be able to finish tasks. There have been so many tasks that have been left completely incomplete since, say, January of 2019. And I could very well have, since we took two months off and everything else and, and only had a few more uh, uh, sermons to go, a few more studies to go in this series, The Power of the Cross, you know, the stumbling block and the foolishness, uh, I could have very easily just went on. But that would have left me with one more unfinished task. And it would have been staring at me at least for a week, you know, in that menu on the YouTube channel and in that menu in the sermon library, I would have known that I didn't finish this. So can you bear with me? I, after every sermon that I've had with these, because they've been very uh, deep, deep in history, deep in prophecy, and deeply personal to many of us. I've asked you, I, I've thanked you at the end for holding on with me, for holding in there, you know, with me. I thanked you. So I'd like to thank you in advance that we finish this series because I am truly convicted that what is about to come up in this series will be very real for us because it's very real for us today. I really, truly am convicted that it is an underlying cause of many, many, much of our conflicts that we have. So I hope you'll, uh, hope you'll hang in there a little longer with me here. The power of the cross, again, foolishness to the world and to believers, according to 1 Corinthians, what is it? A stumbling block. See, it's been almost a month, so 
You know, not, uh, you know, it's been, it's, it's been a couple weeks. So what, what intrigues me is why is it a stumbling block to believers? I believe because when the church began to co-opt the power of the cross for something else, it's a stumbling block to believers because of the seductive and fatal compromise. I believe that the church has made for the past 1,800 years between the sword of power and the cross of Christ. What we've done is, what the church has done, is we've taken the cross and we've weaponized it. We've made it a worldly weapon. So our study has been a couple of parallels in Revelation. I, I, I would say it's, a, it's two parallel apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophecies and revelation in history. Two churches, two churches in the end. Not one, it's not the church against the world living in the end time, it's two churches, it's two ways of worship. We're either members of the church that was, that, uh, the lamb that was slain, or we're members of the church of the beast. There isn't any in between. So the church of the lamb uh, is, uh, of course, the church of Christ, which we all claim to be. How many here are, are, are a member uh, of, of a church, of a body that believes in the power of the cross through our Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we proclaim, that's who we are. But what does it mean in the end time? How do the worships between the two uh, differ? How are they similar? So forth and so on. We've looked at all those things. And as I said before, we, we got to the, the church, looking at the history of the church in Revelation 2 and 3. So we look at the history of the church of the lamb that was slain. What happened? What has happened to us in the past 2,000 years of church history? And what can we expect in the future? What can we expect? And then in Revelation 13, we see the church of the beast and, and, and it's told in parallel histories, if you will. So just real, real quick to catch us completely up, the church of the beast, it says that this, this church began in an era of time that says it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and nation and language and all the inhabitants of the earth will what? How many? All, it said. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered, the only people that will not worship the beast are those who have been saved. That's good news right there. Because otherwise the whole world wonders after the beast. The beast worship language is seeped in war. I asked what's the difference between the two churches. The one main difference is what each of that, those churches do when they ask for your worship. The gods that they worship, these two churches, the church of Christ or the church of the beast, what do those gods do to ask for your worship? The church of the beast, the language is entire about war. They're allowed to make war the church of the beast, a power like nobody has ever seen, one that is entirely focused on the taking away of liberty and freedom. They are forced to worship. The antithesis to love. If love is based on a foundation of freedom and liberty, that you and I were born with free will, 
And that ultimately, when it comes down to worshiping God, we are allowed to choose whether or not we will love God and allowed to choose whether or not he is worthy of our love. So what happened in the history of the church is the church eventually lends the power of the cross, takes the ultimate love power of the cross, as we looked at before. The power of the cross is the power of love. Jesus died for us simply because he what? Simply because he loves us. No other explanation, no other uh, reason is given, no other revelation is given. And by the way, it is the ultimate proof that God loves us. There is no further revelation coming of God's love than the power of the cross. But somewhere around the fourth century, an emperor comes along and he he lends that power. He lends it to the state. You know, in all of the, uh, the lore and the legends that we have in church history and everything, one legend that goes along with, uh, with Constantine that nobody will ever be able to prove, but one church history legend has that he found the nails that nailed, the cro- that nailed Jesus to the cross. He sent, he sent everybody looking for them. And I don't know who he was, but a centurion comes back with these three nails and gives it to him. And it is said that he fashioned those nails into the handle of his sword. That he took two of them like this and one like this and he fashioned them into the handle of his sword. The church begins to lend the power of the cross to the power of the state. And pretty soon, the mightiest empire on earth now carries the cross before it as a weapon And it begins to formulate. He'd uttered, the beast uttered, uh, utters haughty and blasphemous words and is allowed to exercise for how long? For 42 months. We know how long that is, right? We've been shown this. I love, I, I love digging out old slides from our old Revelation seminars. You know, we probably, this probably could be a slide, a little, you know, a little slide that went in a carousel. I bet there are dozens and dozens of little slides and carousels that look just like this. Just like this. 42 months, 1260 years, from 538 CE to 1798. Two churches, if you will, in this history. The top is, is the history of the beast, the bottom is the history of the actual church, of the church of Christ. And as the church of Christ begins to mingle with this, with this power and begins to mingle these two powers, the church of Thyatira begins in this era goes all the way to 1563, Thyatira. And and Jesus told them, he said, this I have against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And what does that imply? Remember, Jezebel was a state authority. Her husband was the king. She sponsored with government funds, if you will, the entire, entire uh, cult or operation of Baal worship. This is a warning against what the church is dabbling in. This is a warning as to what's coming. Constantine puts forth this empire model. And by 538, about 100 years after him, they're ready to run with it. And they do. All the way to 1563. The ingenuity of the beast, empire, the ultimate, I believe, the ultimate counterfeit to the power of the, of the cross. The ultimate counterfeit. An empire 
that claims to have the love of Christ because they've painted their cross on their shields and fashioned the cross in the handles of their swords. And this beast goes rampant for 1,260 years. Makes war, makes war on everyone. I believe it's the most seductive of counterfeits. And then you're saying, remember before then we thought, okay, well, that's okay, Greg, but uh, we're Protestants and that other church, they weren't. They were, they were not Protestant. So certainly the Reformation did something about this. Well, the Reformation church is this one, Sardis, remember? 1563 to 1798. Um, and, and Sardis, did they do any better? No, Jesus said, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service. I know that your last works are greater than your first. He said, you're doing just a little bit better. That's all he has. Those are the only words he has for the Reformation. You're doing better than you were before. You're doing a little better than Thyatira. You're doing better than Thyatira. But remember, the beast had complete control. Complete control from early 500 to 1500. And in the middle of all that is 1517, which is the unofficial or official, however you want to put it, start of the Reformation. The Reformation's got 300 years to do something about this. But by the time we get to 1563, by the time we get uh, to in, into the 1600s, Jesus tells the church at Sardis that you have a great reputation. The Reformation did great things. The reformers got back to Jesus. The reformers dug up the theology of Jesus. Romans and, and all those things. Salvation by grace, by faith, by, by scripture alone. You got a great reputation. But what is it he declared? You got a great reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. At least Thyatira, the church was still alive. The Reformation didn't make it any better. The Reformation actually made it worse. In fact, the Reformation may have killed the church. Why? Because they didn't let go of that seduction of power either. They went looking for sponsorship, if you will. They went looking for national um, uh, support. They went looking for national endorsement. And by 1600, all the religious space in Europe is completely used up. The Catholic Church is struggling with the Protestants. The Protestants are struggling and fighting with themselves. All still fueled by the mentality that faith is associated with nation. That faith is associated with empire. Luther's cry of by, 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 by faith alone, actually by the time he gets to Augsburg, it becomes one nation, one faith. Belief that ecclesiastical uniformity, believe that church uniformity is essential to political health and peace. Protestantism doesn't destroy this mentality. Protestantism uses it to survive. Each country chooses their own faith, Roman Catholic or any of the various branches of Protestantism, all trying to operate empire. Once again, the rights of the individual does not exist. There's no such thing as religious freedom in the old world. The individual does not exist. 
But thank God something happened. According to, back up to the timeline, it says that the earth came to help this woman, opened up its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. The persecution that the beast is putting out there, God gives the woman room, gives the church room, gives her some space, endless space. Can we tell what that space was somewhere around the 15, 16, and 1700s? Not the old world, but the what? The new world. I told you this was gonna get real, didn't I? It's making its way where? It's making its way here, isn't it? In the old world, you'd be persecuted until you were destroyed. In the new world, you may be driven out of one colony, but guess what? You could start another. One amen. One that would agree with Roger Williams and we'll talk about him next week. The space is crucial, by the way, especially crucial for our own church. If God had not given the woman room to spread out, Seventh-day Adventism would have never, ever found the light of day in the old world. Our church had to have the new world. We had to. The space is crucial. So, I wanted to catch, catch us up. I hope you didn't mind. But now, just now, in the midst of all of this, in the midst where even Protestants and Catholics alike are trying to align themselves with this power and making this, this, this weapon out of the cross, the whole world seems to be doing it in the midst of this, in the midst of just one little tiny sliver. A door opens up for just a little bit, just a little bit. Welcome to the church where? At Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will what? No one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and you've kept my word and have not denied my name. If you can remember the dates from the other churches up until this point, you welcome to Philadelphia and beginning in 1798, right at the end of the reign of that first beast, 1798, the end of the 1,260 years, this church pops up. Just when the door seemed to be absolutely closed, in other words, you're not finding it in Protestant churches, we're not finding it in Catholic churches, we're not finding it in the various sects of the world. This one right here, this one has an opportunity. And Jesus said, I'll open it up. I open up the door. Jesus comes to this church as, uh, this, in the city of brotherly love as the Holy One. The common Judaic expression referring to God, Isaiah 40, 25 says, to whom then will you compare me? Who is my equal? says the Holy One. In a community where the pronunciation of the name of God is not common, he is known as the Holy One, blessed be he. He has the key of David. Ed wrote, read to us about the key of David predicted here in this church in Philadelphia. I will place 
on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one will open. Complete control in the royal household of Israel. One who controls access to the king is the one that holds the key of David. Jesus has promised this access to the king. Jesus has full control of the kingdom. Remember in all these chapters that we looked at in the seven churches, he wants to give the churches something. He's constantly looking to give them the solution to their problem. He's looking to give them uh, uh, praise for what they're doing right. He's looking to solve whatever they're doing wrong. He's constantly looking to give things, to give things. I will give, he says. But what kind of church needs this? What kind of church gets this open door? Philadelphia is a church of great opportunity. Great opportunity. Dr. Pauline in his, in his uh, uh, Bible Amplifier series on, on Revelation, he says this. He says, Jesus gives this open, unshuttable door. What an opportunity. Why such one for this church? It says she is of little strength. There's very little wrong with her, and here it is. She's not strong. She's weak. Not a dynamic force for God. Just not making a great impact. Or so it seems. They're faithful to God's word. They're not given to apostasy or compromise. They're faithful to Jesus himself. They do not deny his name. Because you've kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep from you the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. They have patient endurance. And they're all able to do this because of their weakness. They're all able to do this because they have but little power. The Greek actually says, mikron dunamin, dunamas, dynamite, dynamo, dynamic, power. That's where we get that word from. Mikros, microscopic. This church has microscopic power. You need a microscope to find the power in this church. The main strength is their weakness. And to this church, he gives this unlimited doorway. Look, I've set before you what? An open door, which no one is able to shut. So what is this doorway that this church needs so desperately? There are a lot of inter interpretations, but to me there is one that cuts right through all of them. Because in this world of darkness for this 1260 years, the, the, the world's been waiting for a light. And this open door just provides this, this, this sliver of light that just floods the room. It opens up. And of course, that interpretation is Jesus is that door. It's him. He is the key of David. He is the Messiah. Remember what Jesus has against Thyatira and Sardis. You've been seeking your power in other places. If I go to seek my power from the state, if I go to seek my power from political will, from military might, then who am I not seeking it from? And why, Jesus says, why have you turned your back on me? Because, because it, it, it means everything. 
You know, Jesus told us this is not gonna be easy. Expect what? Expect sacrifice. Expect to carry your own cross. Expect to be able to love even though you do not feel like it. Right? It's, it's, not, a, uh, it's not an encouraging message. It's, uh, the Beatitudes is not a very great cre- uh, recruiting poster for the army of Jesus. Poor, hungry, thirsty, persecuted, right? That's not a great recruiting poster, is it? It doesn't sound like Uncle Sam, I want you, does it? This connection to David, too. David is Israel's mightiest king. There's never been a king like David. Do we agree on that? Every time they look for an example, who do they go to? They go to David. He is the mightiest of Israel's kings. But when he attempts to use that might and that power, when he constantly looking to do good for God, he's always looking to do things right for God, right? So he wants to use that, that uh, new power that he has, that richness that he has, because now the whole kingdom belongs to him and he's looking to do something good. And he, after he builds his own castle, after he builds his own house, he says, you know what? I'm living in a house of stone and the Lord is living in what? He's living in a tent. So I want to do something for God. And what did God tell him? He said, David, this is where I draw the line. I'm gonna draw it right here. God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name, for you are a what? You are a warrior, and you have what? And you have shed blood. The temple, the illustration of the love of God, the physical illustration on earth predicting and telling the story of what Christ will do for us. Coming, sacrifice himself, forgive all sins. He said, I can't have you mixing up the power in here. This has to be about the power of the cross, David. It can't be about the power of the sword. You with me? Then why David? Why is Israel constantly looking at David? It isn't because of his military might. His military might came in handy because they were being trampled by every nation that was around them, right? Philistines and Ammonites and and all of these enemies, all these ites that seemed to just want that little nation right there. So it comes in handy, doesn't it? But he said, that's not why I picked you. It was David's previous occupation that qualified him to be the mightiest king in all Israel. And what did David used to do? He was a shepherd. This was the one quality God wanted to give Israel as a king. Forgive the harshness, but it's true. Bathsheba was raped and Uriah was murdered by kingly might and power. And when Nathan convicts David, what does he use as an illustration? Remember? The rich man who took the poor man's what? Lamb. He uses a shepherd illustration. And David is cut to the quick. Because David gets angry that that lamb was stolen. David gets angry that that lamb was stolen. And it, and, it, and it touched his shepherd's heart. And as it did, he realized, he realized that he was willing to give his life for the sheep. But with all his kingly might and power, he wasn't willing to do it for Bathsheba and Uriah. 
Sheep meant more to him. So this door, this key to David, it's David as shepherd, not David as king. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the what? I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved, and he will go in and out and find what? And find pasture. And Jesus does it with a sword. He does it with the cross, doesn't he? We can enter only through Jesus. This door is open. And think of the prophetic message at the time. Think of where the church is. The church basically is absolutely comatose, dead, dead. The Reformation, uh, Roman Catholicism, it doesn't matter. The church is dead. And at this very moment, Jesus still comes and offers an open door. I, And he doesn't give the church any more power than the cross. Just him. So when the beast is dominating the world power, the earth opens up to give the church room. This era now, this era given a doorway to open, to keep open, and trust in the cross's true power. Not the counterfeit, not what the beast would tell us makes the cross powerful, but what the lamb tells us makes the cross powerful. See, the thing about Philadelphia is, again, it has no power. From 1798, look how little, look how narrow this window is. 1798 to what? 52 years compared to 1,260 in the others. Man, right? has this much of an opportunity, this much, goes to 1850, if you will. So from 1790 to 1840, there's something else that happens, there's something else that accompanies, accompanies the, the founding, if you will, of this nation and, and, and the new world, if you will. It's called the Second Great Awakening, 1790 to 1840. It is the most powerful religious movement in American history. And I put this in quotes, and I put it in quotes on purpose. The second great awakening is what made America think they were Christian. You with me? The whole myth that we are a Christian nation arises because our founding is mixed up in this movement. Doesn't belittle the movement, by the way, because the movement was awesome. The movement was awe-striking. The movement was supernatural. By the way, the last great preacher of the Second Great Awakening would be a man named William Miller. Some of you know who he is. Was, right? So in this opportunity, 
that the church has in this opportunity of the door opening a crack. They, they let loose this wave of social reform. They wanted to right all injustice and every problem. This is what the church was looking to do during the Second Great Awakening. Abolition of slavery, abolition of war, abolition of poverty. Reform societies, they wanted to reform health reform and temperance reform and labor reform. They were looking to, to make the sexes equal. Most modern Bible and missionary societies, the American Missionary Society, the American Bible Society, United and United Mission and Bible, all formed during this time. All to achieve social and personal perfection through reform. All happening in this little window of time, if you will. And guess what power is missing? Guess what power they don't seek in order to pull this off. They're not going to the brand new American government to do so. It's the church. The church is even uh, forming and founding whole towns and cities to try to live out this reform. Towns like Oneida and, and, and all those. These were, these were Christian utopian cities that were being formed. Their aim was simple. Bring about the millennium because they believed that when the millennium comes and that thousand year period is over with, if they could just get it right for a thousand years, then what happens at the end? Jesus will come. Most American Protestantism is all founded is what we call post-millennial. In other words, they believe that we have to bring about the millennium first, develop the kingdom, make it perfect, and then Jesus can come and rule over the kingdom but also one very distinctive message that William Miller had was what? The millennium doesn't come before the second coming. Miller began to teach that it came when? After. And if you wanna ask me why one of the reasons, one of the reasons North American or just American Christianity has trouble with, with continually uh, going back and forth with this power of the sword and the power of the cross. One is, if you really think that you have the power within you, that the church has the power on earth within us to make the kingdom perfect and bring about the second coming, then what will we always be tempted to do with that power? Exactly. Just something to think about. To me, how important premillennialism really is. So for this 50-year period, just this little sliver, we had an opportunity. And he warned us, though, there will be people trying to shut the door. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I what? that I have loved you. There will be people trying to shut the door and the people that'll be shutting the door are people that believe that they are worshipers. They're members of a synagogue. You have to remember at the time that John is writing this, true believers still worshiped in synagogues. You with me? This is not Jew and Christian here. This is believer and non-believer. Hang in there with me, that's very important. 
Very important to understand when we talk about the synagogue of Satan, if you will. And the Jews he speaks of here that believe that they're believers, but they are not. It's a religious power that is going to always be tempted, a religious power that is always gonna be tempted to close that door. It's because if the true church is walking around with an open door to Christ, then the church of the beast has to do something to close that door. The beast doesn't doesn't want us near the lamb. Amen? The beast doesn't want us loving. Especially doesn't want us showing the world what love is. To show the world what the power of the cross really is. Because it exposes him. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you what? You stop them. The church of the beast will step up and step forward with that power. They have a new standard. The standard isn't unconditional love. The standard is love when I want it to be, conditional love. The standard is I can decide who gets God's love and who doesn't. This, this synagogue, this false church, this church of the beast, this synagogue of Satan, has groups of people that they tell don't belong. And as they keep them out, they're telling them that God does not love them. But it's amazing, Jesus is that door. Jesus says, and they will learn, that church, they will learn that I what? That I love you. Man, is that powerful. The first love that, they, that the church tried to do away with back, at, at, back in Ephesus, the very first church, all the way back in the first century, I have this against you, you've lost what? You've lost your first love. You forgot that God loves you. And even more critical, you forgot that if God loves you, it also means he loves everyone else. Go love as I have loved you. So that love that they tried to do away with at Ephesus, the opponents of Philadelphia will learn what this is about. The synagogue of Satan will come and kneel before them. The very same people making the lying claim to to be Jews or true believers one day will confess that God loves the very people that the church said he couldn't love. the ones that they counted outside of God's love. It's them that will come and assure them of God's love. Yes, one day the Philadelphians, one day the enemies of the Philadelphians will be humiliated, but they'll only be humiliated by the fact that God loved them. We can be told and take heart that this present situation of weakness does not continue forever. See, love is only a weakness on a planet that is in it for itself. Love is only a weakness on a planet that is selfish by nature. Love is only a 
uh, weakness on a planet that is ruled by sin. But we're promised that if we love, he says, I'll keep you from what? I'll keep you from the hour of trial. They'll be protected, we'll be protected, if you will. Philadelphia is protected from the very worst that could possibly happen. Just imagine that. Imagine coming off the, the you know, the, uh, if we're living at the time, if we're living at 1798, and we're coming off that, that horrible era of 1260 years, and, and Jesus shows up and he says, don't worry, a worse one is coming. But he says, I'll protect you from that. And what is it we'll be protected from? It's not a deliverance or a safekeeping from whatever is going to happen. Remember he says this, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. John uses the same Greek verbs in, in, in chapter 17 of his gospel that he uses in Revelation. Protect them. Don't take them out of the world, but deliver them from the evil one in the world. In other words, you will not fail if you continue to love. Even when the church is telling you that it's weak, even when the church is telling you that you have compromised, you can't give love to that particular group of people, you can't give love to that particular sinner, you can't invite them here. Jesus said if you hang on and you love, and even stand up against those that, that would pervert that love, that would pervert the power of, cross, of the cross. He says, then you're good, you've overcome. So he says, don't take them out of the world. Don't separate them. Don't send them to the hills. Don't lock them behind monastery doors and walls. In order to love the world, you have to be in it. What makes us not of the world is the love that we have while we're in it. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. So I just ask you to Think of that now in light of that. Think of what we've been told to do, that, that to, to be part of this, to be the endurance of the saints that keep the commandments of God. And by the way, what are the commandments of God? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Does it include the Decalogue? Does it include all 10, including the fourth one? Yes, it does. But I have to ask this, I do ask this in light of what we know, in light of the opportunity that was given us. I want you to take that beautiful truth that we have in the fourth commandment and actually believe, actually believe that when we read this verse back when we were founded, back in this era of this, you know, somewhere between 1798 and 1850 when we began to try to get a hold of this, this truth, what did we do with it? What have we done with it? My very first church, when I got there, there was a woman, a young woman who was, who was coming and she had been coming for a couple of years. But you could tell, you could tell immediately she was, she, um, she was not like everyone else. And, and, and it was true, she hadn't joined yet, she hadn't studied for baptism, she hadn't expressed a desire, but for some reason she loved coming to this church, her and her little girl. 
Those girl, little, but she, she had something about her that just kept her kind of on the fringe, you know, just kept her out there. So when I came and I started preaching, I just, you know, started asking her. I didn't know. I didn't know what to ask her or what not to ask her. So, so we studied for a while and we, we got to know each other a little bit better. And, and this, was just, this was just one of those girls that just, seemed, you know, life just seems to throw every curveball at her and it seemed to hit and to stick. You know one of those? And one Sabbath, she was truly, truly enjoying herself. We had potluck every Sabbath, and this was a Sabbath that she, she hung around with us, and, and, and she had a, a, a great day, but when she got home, there was something waiting for her. The landlord that she thought she had another week to move out, the landlord was standing in the driveway waiting and ordering her to leave. Which presented a problem for her, she thought, because she doesn't have any help. And the only people that she knows to help are back where? At the church. Or they're at home because it's summertime and it's only 2.30. So she calls me and she said, and I'll never forget what she asked me. She calls me and she said, Pastor, wouldn't this qualify wouldn't this qualify, these are her exact words, wouldn't this qualify as the ox in the ditch? And of course I said just what Grady just said. Yeah, it does. Problem was, was that I didn't have, I had a van and I could take the seats out of it, but I'm not getting very much in there. So I needed a truck. And I called my head elder and he answered the phone and I said, and, and he, probably, possibly might be one of those who didn't maybe quite see it that way. So I was just prepared to ask if I could borrow his truck and that was it. But that didn't work for Charles. No, not at all. Because the truck came and Charles came and ready to work. And so yeah, we did. We went. We moved her out. (laughs) What's funny is that we had it all done before sundown completely done before sundown. But I want to fast forward nearly 30 years to us in prayer meeting. And we were studying those words. We were, we were in chapter 10 of John and talking about that love of the shepherd and everything else. And we, I don't know how it happened, but we cross-referenced. We, we went back to the, we, the argument that Jesus had with the Pharisees that day where he said, woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. He said, every Sabbath, if an ox fell in a ditch, you would, you, wouldn't you take it out? Or if an ox and a child fell in a ditch, wouldn't you, wouldn't you take it out? And then his message was, aren't people worth more than what? Animals. And somewhere along the line, she thought that the only way that we could get her to help was to treat her like an ox. We needed to give, we needed a legal reason to help her before sundown, both of us. Jesus is saying, what do you do? 
with a teaching like the Sabbath. She'd been coming for three years and that's what we taught her, that she had to give us a legal reason for us to help her. Somehow we didn't convince her that she meant more to us than an ox or that she meant more to us than some words on the paper or in stone. I hope she can find her way to forgive us. See, Sabbath may separate us, but it won't take us out. It shouldn't take us out. Love again is the difference between the dead commandment and the love that keeps us from the world. According to Philadelphia, it's all under his control. And in him, we can be assured that all of his promises are a big, resounding yes. I'm coming soon, he says. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. To Ephesus, to Pergamum, to Sardis, to churches that were looking to replace love with something else, his coming is seen as a threat. But to Philadelphia, it's seen as a blessing. I'm coming soon. If you conquer, I'll make a pillar, you a pillar in the temple of my God, you'll never go out of it. I'll write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name. I will keep you. I'm coming soon. I will make you. I will write on you. We're kept if we love. You keep me and I'll keep you. He says, I'll make you an everlasting temple presence. I'll write you on you the name of the God of God, the city of God, and my own name on you. In the Song of Solomon, there's this beautiful verse, and I forgot what it was in Hebrew. You wouldn't want me to pronounce it anyway. I'd just butcher it. But it's this beautiful one: I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Exclusive love to Philadelphia. It could be ours. I know we've gone past Philadelphia. I know we're living in the other church and we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. But the door can still be open even though the time has taken us to Laodicea. The door and the love is still open to Philadelphia. It's ours. It's ours. Thank you for holding on with me. Happy New Year.